acceptable. No. Uh, do you know the old Billy Graham quote about the person who complained about worship? He said, well, it's okay, we're not worshiping you. <laughs> I love uh, congregational singing. I love doing things like that where we just every now and then we throw a curveball and, and, and see it. It's not about hearing the person lead and us just kind of enjoying their gift. It's about us singing together and glorifying God together. If we're gathering as a body of believers to worship God, then that's what we should do. And so praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Vince. Genesis 32 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to make it all the way to verse 21. God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Yes, God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he watches over you and me. So are you frightened? No, not really. Are you scared? Not a bit. I know whatever is going to happen. God can handle it. That's Junior Asparagus from Veggie Tales. I was looking over this passage and, and studying it, trying to, to plan out sermons and, and kind of see where we want to break and go with these things and these ideas. And, and we have this interesting passage here that we're going to get to where uh, Jacob has now left Laban. He, he's out of his control. He's going back to the promised land, but he knows that that means he has to encounter Esau. And last time he left Esau, it wasn't under good situation. He fled from Esau because he was scared Esau was going to kill him. And so now he's coming back, and he is equally scared of Esau still. And so this whole passage that we're going to cover is really just answering this one question that seems like such a silly question. Where is God when I'm scared? And I know when I started looking at that, I was like, but that's just such, that, that's like what our kids ask us. You know, I'm scared. Where's God when I'm, I'm scared? And now that I'm an adult, I have a nightlight and a handgun, so I have nothing to be scared of anymore. But as I was reflecting on this, I think there's a reality that's deeper kind of than the surface level. That to a certain degree, all of us have to cope with this understanding that we're not in complete control of our life. If we're honest, that's scary. There are things that happen that we have absolutely no power over. So how do we handle those things? If you talk to unbelievers or people who reject Christianity, this is one of the main reasons they'll tell you they just don't believe in Christianity because where is God in the bad things? Where is God when I'm scared? Honestly, I think Christians have offered a lot of bad help <laughs> when people ask those things. Because we'll say things like, just don't fear God. Like, just don't be scared. That never works. As the father of two girls and the husband of one wife, I will tell you, if they're upset or angry and you just say, just don't be scared, it doesn't work that way. Or we live our lives where we say, I trust God, I'm not scared, but then our actions tell a different story, right? We'll say faith over fear, but we all lock our doors at night and we turn the security system on, don't we? So the answer to the question is, where is God when I'm scared that we deal with with Jacob gets here? Is it really boils down to three things. Where is God when I'm scared? Well, God is, is with you. God hears you and God sees you. So let's pray and then we will dive into this passage and I will say this one too. God, thank you so much for today. God, in the middle of West Texas on a hot Sunday morning with no band 
fancy lights, no fog machines, no anything. You have us gathered together to sing songs with one another, to hear each other sing off key and out of tune and, and not on the right rhythm, but God, to sing with our hearts towards you and to hear your word proclaimed. And God, we know that it is enough. So I pray, God, as we walk through this passage of Scripture and we deal with fear and we deal with being scared and we deal with things beyond our control and, and God, sometimes the things that we're scared of are sins that we've committed in the past that are now coming up to the present to haunt us. God, I pray that you would draw us close to you. It's in your name. Amen. Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. And when Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him and Jacob saw them he said this is God's camp so he called the name of the place Mahanaim and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir to the country of Edom instructing them thus you shall say to my lord Esau thus says your servant Jacob I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now I have oxen donkeys flocks male and female servants and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided his people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So we have Jacob, our Henri person we've been tracking throughout Scripture that I've openly admitted I would not be friends with if, if he was still alive. And we see that he spent a long time in Padanaram with Laban, his uncle. But one of the things that's happened in that, that kind of wilderness experience for Jacob is he's had to grow in the Lord. His whole life, he's been the deceiver, but Uncle Laban, and Laban's better at deceiving than Jacob is at deceiving. And so Jacob becomes the one who's deceived, and he's had to grow in the Lord through that experience. And if you remember, before Jacob enters into Laban's house, he has this dream. He's got his head on a rock, and he has this dream where there's angels ascending and descending on this ladder, this staircase, and then God is at the top of the staircase, and God covenants with Jacob, saying, I'll be your God. And Jacob, in typical Jacob fashion, was like, well, you can be my God if you'll do these things. And then he wakes up, and he sets up the stone as a memorial. And he calls it Bethel, which means house of God. And then he enters into Laban's land for 20 years and he fled because of his brother Esau he stole the blessing right he he traded the birthright for a bowl of stew Esau did and then Esau wanted the blessing but he wanted the blessing for the monetary value he wanted the stuff that came with with it and Jacob wanted it for Jacob's reasons and Jacob's mom was favored Jacob and Jacob, uh, Jacob's dad favored Esau and so there's this whole family mess of what happens and it ends up with Esau saying the only way I'm going to be comforted from this is I'm just going to kill my brother as soon as I'm done mourning the death of my dad who's still alive like I Thanksgivings were awesome there and so Jacob runs he flees and for all 
we know, he's not talked to Esau since then. 20 years. Jacob's the mama's boy. His mom is now gone. She's not in the picture anymore. She's passed away. And so he comes back up, and we see Jacob doing what the Lord did, right? So, so God shows up. He, he leaves the land of Laban, right? He enters into the land of Laban. He has this dream about angels, and now he's leaving, right? God's house, that's what Bethel means. And now when he leaves Laban's land, did you catch the first verse? The angels of God met him. So sandwiching this experience with Laban are these two angelic encounters. One is called Bethel, which means the house of God. And then this one, which is called Menhaim, which means God's camp. You have the house of God and God's camp, but actually the word means two camps. So what Jacob is recognizing is God has his camp here and we have our camp here and we're together. And so he, he takes a, a, a note from God, right? The word angel means messenger. And in Hebrew, messenger and angel are identical words. The only thing that's different is who they're the messengers of. So angels are God's messengers, and Jacob's messengers are not called angels. They're just called messengers. And so he sends his messengers to Esau with this carefully constructed sentence. Did you catch that? I've got all of these things for you. My, uh, I'm your servant, Jacob. Not brother, servant, Jacob. He's putting himself under Esau's authority. Because remember last time when he usurped Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. So he's groveling. He, he wants to have this peace, but he also knows Esau's redheaded and he's angry. So he says, I've got all of these animals, all of these things that I'm going to send to you. I just want to find favor. I want to make peace with this relationship. And then Jacob's messengers come back. And they say, hey, we, we saw Esau. We talked to him. Kind of a good news, bad news thing. Good news, he received us and let us go. Bad news, he has 400 men and he's coming to meet you. That's an army. When Jacob, or when, when uh, Abraham rescued Lot, you remember that story? When Lot got carried off by that king, Abraham took 318 people. So Jacob is facing Esau with a larger army than Abraham rescued Lot with. And what is Jacob's response? Greatly afraid and distressed. And so he takes all of his belongings and he divides them into two camps. And this is just a practical thing for Jacob. He, he's already admitted, I can't beat Esau in a fight. But what I can do is limit the damage. So I'm going to have two camps. Esau's going to have to pick which camp he wants to destroy. And then the other camp can flee and get out of here. But if you remember at the beginning, I said Menahim, which is God's camp, means two camps. And so it's this play on words that's happening in the story where Jacob forgets that God's camped there too. So he makes two camps. He forgets that God has his camp. And it's just kind of out of sight out of mind, which is often what happens with spiritual things, isn't it? And so we look at Jacob and we think, okay, well, where is God when I'm scared? Because this is what Jacob is feeling. And at the moment, we, we, we can look at the story and we can just get, I get so frustrated with Jacob because I'm like, where is God when you're scared? Jacob, he's in your camp. He's with you right there. Like in, in verse 2, you said you named this place, two camps, acknowledging God has his camp and we have our camp next to it. And by verse 8, you've completely forgot it and you're just making up these two camps now. And he forgets because he 
can't see God's hand with earthly eyes. So where is God when I'm scared? Well, he is with you. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we know from the New Testament that that means that the Holy Spirit, God, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, dwells in us. So not only is God with us, he is in us. We're to have a tabernacle. He dwells within us. So where's God when I'm scared? He is in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all deeds of steadfast love and of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, for you make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the only time in Scripture we hear Jacob pray. In fact, it's the only time in Scripture that we see Jacob pray at all. Everywhere else, he just kind of is Jacob things. This is the only time he prays, and i got to give him credit. It is a phenomenal prayer. And I think that's why I get so frustrated with Jacob. It's part of it is I see myself in Jacob, where there's times when you do great, and there's times when you have it all together, and there's times when you pray these magnificent, phenomenal prayers, and it seems like you're trusting the Lord completely, and in the next moment, it just feels like all of that is gone, and you're doing something else. So he starts by saying who God is. This is how we start our prayers often, isn't it? Dear Heavenly Father, or whatever we, we say, we typically start with, with who God is. But Jacob does this extended version. and it's, we, we do a disservice when we go, Dear Heavenly Father, and then we just jump into our requests. We miss a whole lot of our prayers. Now, God hears those prayers. Absolutely. But if we look at the way prayers are modeled for us in Scripture, they're more about shaping our hearts to trust the Lord than they are getting the little things that we ask for. So he acknowledges who God is, and we get to talk to him. And, and, and the reality of this is we should be off limits from getting to talk to God. When I was younger, somewhere between first, second, third grade, um, we went to a Colorado Rockies game. We went to a lot of Rockies games. I've got lots of memories there. But this one is, is probably my most vivid memory. Uh, there's two that are really vivid, and this is one of them. Um, we watched the Rockies play. Uh, and I don't remember what team he was on, but we watched him play Ken Griffey Jr. And I was young enough that I was being able to be used to try to get our family an autograph from Ken Griffey Jr. I was still young and cute, much has changed since then. And so we wait after the game, and they have those movable fences, you know, like those metal fences with the deals. And so we're sitting there, and I don't, it was just a bunch of guys at this baseball game. And, and as soon as the security guards would turn their back, they would pick up this fence, and they would move it forward a few feet and set it down. So we're inching closer and closer to where Ken Griffey Jr., I'm, you know, I'm putting on my full cuteness. It, was, it didn't work, but I, everything I tried to do to get as close as we could to Ken Griffey Jr., have a Sharpie in my hand, looking for him just to sign something. So I remember it. I remember it vividly. He walks out of the tunnel, like right here, and then he just turns and he goes that way. And some dude yells, you know, Mr. Griffey Jr. or Ken or whatever he yells. And, and all we get is like this backwards glance and just a little hand like that. And he's just walking. It was just disheartening. We'd done everything we could do, and that dude just kind of blew us off. 
I couldn't get near him for an autograph, let alone for a conversation, let alone get near him to build a relationship with him. He was distant, and he didn't really have any desire to be near us, even though I was super adorable and it wasn't my fault. I think sometimes in, in prayer and sometimes our opinion of God, tend to not recognize or realize who God really is because God is so available to us. He's so far beyond us. So much greater than us in every conceivable way, yet he's available. And so sometimes because God is available to us, we treat him like he's defensive. So Jacob prays to God and he acknowledges who God is. Praise the Bible. That covenant God made with Jacob, he repraise it to God. You said you were going to bring me home. You said that I'll do these good things for you. He recognizes God's grace and mercy. Jacob says, I'm not worthy. I watched this happen one time at a youth camp. We had a speaker who kids aren't supposed to have their phones because they're sneaky. And so they had their phones. It was just a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago. And the speaker said, um, I, I can't remember. He's like, I'm not all that or I'm not worthy or it was something like that. And he was like, I dare you to go home when you get home and put that on your social media. We had a few kids that snuck their phones. They put it on their phones that night. You better believe the camp's phone was ringing off the wall with parents irate at the camp. Because that's not what we teach ourselves, is it? Christian songs and Christian books and Christian movies and all sorts of things will teach us the exact opposite of what Jacob's praying. They say, you are worthy. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. And I've, I've heard sermons by, by pastors I would never endorse. I've heard it multiple times from different people who said, just think how valuable you are that God had to give up his son to get you. That is Terrific. Think how big of a sinner you are that God had to give up his son to get you. See, grace is only available to those who know they need grace. So to receive grace, it means you must understand that you're not worthy because grace can't be earned. If you're worthy, you don't need grace. And so Jacob's here praying, I'm not worthy because he recognizes he needs grace. And we've read his story. He needs a lot of grace. To receive mercy, we have to understand that we're not worth it. That's what mercy is. So we can, we can build our self-esteem as much as we want to. We can do everything within our power to try to justify every decision and every action and every emotion and every feeling that we have to make ourselves feel worthy. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, it doesn't make you worthy or not. Only the Lord declares those things. Point of salvation is not you're awesome, so come to Team God. The point of salvation is you're not worthy. That's why you need salvation. That's why I need salvation. It's not about how great I am, it's about how worthy Christ is. And I think if we spent our whole life trying to make ourselves worthy, we miss the point of the gospel. We need to echo Jacob here. God, I'm not worthy. Because it's not about me. 
salvation isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Jacob calls himself God's servant, which means Jacob's acknowledging that he's been purchased by God and he's being used by God for what God declares. And Jacob recognizes that everything that he has is from God. He says, when I crossed over the river, all I had was a stick. And now look, I have enough stuff that I'm breaking it up into two camps. Everything that I have, God, you have given me. I'm not worthy, but you are worthy. So then, and after all of those things, he makes his request to the Lord. He says, deliver me from Esau, because he frightens me. Jacob is real with the Lord. Whether it's a valid fear for him to have or not is a mute one. That's the way he's feeling, and that's where his emotions have him at, is that he is absolutely scared of Esau. He's scared that if Esau comes and attacks, he's going to be overtaken. He's scared that he can't protect his wives and the mothers in his camp from Esau. He's scared that he can't protect the children in his camp from Esau, and so he pleads with God for help. He says, I know that you promised that my offspring would be as numerous as the sand of the sea, but God, I'm scared. See, this is an important point for us walking through this sermon. Where is God when I'm scared? Where is God when I fear for my family? Where is God when when I can't console my, my spouse? Where is God when my kids are hurting and my kids are struggling and I can't do anything to make them feel better? Where is God when money gets tight and I don't know if we're going to make it? Where is God when work is difficult and I just don't know if I can keep doing this job? Where is God when I am done and I am desperate and I need a break, but life keeps throwing curveballs and I'm scared? Where is God when I'm scared? Well, God is with you because he dwells inside of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and God hears you. Those desperate prayers made through tears, God hears them. And he doesn't hear them because you're worthy. He hears them because he is God and he keeps his promises. Verse 13. So he stayed there the night. And from what he had, he took uh, with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put his face between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob, and they are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. And he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind you. For he thought, I may appease him with presents that go before me. And afterwards I shall see his face and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. You caught what, what Jacob's doing now. He's, he's got everything divided. He's got his defenses set up. And he says, one last kind of Hail Mary to make Esau happy. And so he's going to send off 
all of these animals. So he, he said he has. He's going to send them off, but he's going to send them in droves. So you have just, I mean, he's just flattering Esau. Like, here's these presents. And then as soon as Esau kind of gathers his wits about those gifts that he gets, there's a, another drove that comes in. And he's hoping that he'll just wear Esau down. This is the nerdiest illustration I've ever used, and I'm beyond excited to do it. In the book, not the movie, The Hobbit, <laughs> which is, uh, we'll talk about it later, which The Hobbit is the prequel to Lord of the Rings. So this is not, it's not Frodo with the ring. This is what happens before then. And, and it's, so it's written by Jake, his name. So in the book, not in the movie, the movie doesn't tell the story the same way. They change it because that's what Hollywood does. They just change things for no good reason. Sorry. In the book, there's this group of dwarves, there's one hobbit, and there's a wizard named Gandalf. They're leading this, this group to go get this treasure and, and save a castle and defeat a dragon. It's a cool story. The group needs shelter, and they know of a place nearby. Gandalf knows of a place nearby. However, it's the home of a giant who shapeshifts into a bear. Like I said, the nerdiest illustration I've given. Gandalf has never met this man. His name is Bayorn, but he knows that he loves a good story. So again, in the book, not the movie, in the book, what Gandalf does is he hatches this plan where him and the Hobbit go to Bayorn first. Just those two, nobody else. Because apparently Bayorn doesn't like the dwarves. There's a whole history there. It gets really nerdy the more I say it. My bad. Gandalf is confident that if he can start telling the story of why they're going and the people that they've killed and all of the things that have happened, that Bayorn's going to get roped into the story and he's not going to care about this big crowd that's coming into his house. And so Gandalf does this sign and all of a sudden these dwarves start coming to the door two by two and they enter into the house and Gandalf is telling the story and Bayorn's like, just get inside, sit down and be quiet. I want to hear what's going on. And he's telling him the stories of these stone giants and these goblins and how they killed the great goblin and all of these things. And it, it Bayorn loves it. And so he ends up enjoying the company. They all become friends because Gandalf had this strategy of slowly working into his house as opposed to just knocking on the door and showing up all at once. And later on in the book, Bayorn reappears and he helps this huge battle. But that's neither here nor there. That's what Jacob's wanting to do. He recognizes the physical threat that Esau is to him. He recognizes his fear that if it's a fist fight, Esau's going to win every single time. So instead, Jacob's like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to wear him down with presents so that when he gets into my presence, he's going to have no energy to fight, or to die. And so he sends these servants off with these specific instructions. I don't know if you caught those specific instructions of what he's supposed to say and how they're supposed to say it and how he'll respond with these things. So it's just over and over this gratitude that he's going to get. These gifts that he's going to get are going to hopefully wear him down so that he's not so angry at Jacob. And maybe, just maybe, Esau will accept him. So again, we look at this passage and we ask the question, where is God when I'm scared? What we've seen is that God is, is for me and he dwells in me if I'm a believer now. We have seen that God hears me and that God keeps his promises. And now what we see is that God sees Jacob, he sees you in that, and he gives gifts, he gives grace, and he gives mercy when you're scared. For us in, in, in West Texas area, in IRS Bear County, that this is one of the hardest lessons and the most difficult things that the Bible presents to us. 
because in, in, in our life, in the way that our values are structured, you never want to take a handout. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You work hard. You do all of those things to get something in life. And what the Bible is telling us here is you can't earn this. You, you can't work this off. There's no amount of gifts that you can give. There's no amount of things that you can send to God. You can you could gather every single piece of anything in the world and present it to the Lord, and it wouldn't be enough of a gift. And God already owns it all, and God doesn't need what we have. So there's nothing that we can give to the Lord that he doesn't already have. And so we approach this passage of Scripture, and it's hard for us because it goes against something that's ingrained in our culture. God already owns everything. This is just a gift we have to receive. There's nothing attached to that. See, the truth is that God already sees us and he sees all of us. And he offers grace and he offers mercy through the gospel of Jesus. See, the God of the Bible doesn't demand that we bring him many gifts and robes and hoping that, that maybe if we gather all of our stuff and we do it just right and we say just the right words, that maybe, just maybe, God will accept us. No, he's not. The God of the Bible says, I am for you, I am with you, I hear you, and I see you. And you're accepted because Jesus is worthy, not because you are. Now go and obey in light of that reality. I'm with you in your not off at this distance, far away, not caring about what's happening in your life. I am with you in your camp, and I hear your prayers, whether you think they're good prayers or bad prayers, whether you like the way I respond or don't respond. I hear your prayers. I see you, all of you, everything laid bare before you. See, this passages like this are so simple that we do the same thing Jacob does, don't we? Think, remember, Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while the Israelites are wandering in the desert. Do you remember what happens to the Israelites when they're wandering in the desert? They're reading stories like these. They're reading this story. They're getting frustrated at Jacob like we get frustrated at Jacob going, you have God's camp right there. Why are you doing two camps and God is hearing you? Like just obey the Lord. Quit running astray. Quit doing those things until they get to the edge of the promised land. And then they send in their spies to the promised land and they come back out. And you know what they say? They're big and they're strong and we're scared. The same thing Jacob says. And so then we read their story and we're like, why can't you get it? What do you not see here that we're not seeing? God is with you. He's, he's not far away. He's with you. And he hears those prayers and he hears those struggles and he's with you. And he sees you and he has grace and he has mercy for you until we get to our lives and we do the same thing. We have to be careful in acting like we're better than Jacob and Israel. These stories are for us to look at and go, we need to make sure we're not doing the exact same thing that they're doing. God is dwelling with us, and that means as he's dwelling in us, he's reshaping us from the inside out. But because of sin and the way God works for his glory, it is rarely a very quick process. It's typically slow and extremely painful. 
it's certain. I, I see this all the time. I've had discussions this weekend about it. Like in, in, in this cultural moment, let's just pause and, and, and take the pulse of how we're feeling about the way the world's turning. We can think about uh, Ukraine or Washington, D.C. or Austin, Texas or college swim meets or whatever else is going on in the world. And oftentimes those things bring up within us things that are frustrating or things that cause us to fear. Things that cause us to get scared. But do you know what the Bible says? The Spirit of God is not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self control. So if Ukraine or Washington or Russia or Austin or whatever it is in life is bringing up within your heart fear and animosity, then the promise of Scripture is the spirit that you're leaning into is not the Holy One. It's the spirit of the world. Satan is deceptive. So check to make sure who we're listening to on things. Make sure what you're feeling. Man, one of the great lies that I've seen over and over, I see it in my life, I see it in others' lives, is that our feelings and our emotions are uncontrollable and unaffected by the fall. So what that means is that what I'm feeling or how my emotions lead me is the ultimate source of what's true and not true, and that's a lie from Satan. Our emotions don't tell us what's right and what's wrong. Our emotions tell us how we feel about things. And I'll, listen, there are emotions that you and I have that are sinful emotions that we should repent of and, and turn to the Lord with. That's why God has given us his word. It never changes and it doesn't need to. Our emotions and our feelings are much like the weather that we live under where if you're here today and then tomorrow it's going to be different. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our emotions and our feelings are going to fly up and down. There'll be times when we're scared and times when we're not scared. There's going to be times when we're brave and there's going to be times when we're not brave. There's going to be times when we're proud and there's times when we're not proud. All of those things waver and flow. They ebb and flow just based on whatever it is in our life that's controlling those things. But the Word of God doesn't change. It sets the standard of right and wrong and true and false. Not emotions, not feelings. Those emotions and feelings can be good things that the Lord uses within us. We should be angry at sin. We should be joyful in, in rejoicing with brothers and sisters who have good things going on, weeping with those who weep. But what the Word of God tells us is that our most important need, our biggest need, understanding where God is and when, when, when we're scared, is that God is on the cross. on the cross bears the wrath of God that should scare us the cost of our sin Christ bears completely and fully and not only that right if, if Jesus just bears the wrath of God for us and he wipes the slate clean and now we have our, a good old chalkboard that's, that's nice and clean ready to go the next thing we're going to do is we're going to start marking it up with more things that need to be forgiven right so he doesn't just take the wrath of God. He credits us. He imputes us with his righteousness. So you take that chalkboard and you get the Sharpie marker out and you write Jesus' righteousness on it. So then it's not just we're saved from what we have done. We're saved from, from our sin to the Lord. And we have Christ's righteousness in us. So we start living in light of that truth. And when we understand that gospel reality, Jesus in my place, 
then when we ask the question or we feel the question, where is God when I'm scared, it's not asked out of fear and out of longing for, for God to do something. We say, where is God when I'm scared? And it's asked as a way to bring about hope within us. Where is God when I'm scared? He is in me if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, reshaping my life to look like him. Where is God when I'm scared? Hearing my not because I'm worthy, not because I, I am just really good at praying, but he hears my prayers because he is glorified in taking someone like me, a terrible sinner who is not worthy, and using someone like that for his kingdom means that God is really good, not me. Where is God when I'm scared? deserve to be offered when, when I deserve to, to face God's judgment and God's destruction God's eternal punishment God sees me but more importantly if you're a believer he sees Christ's righteousness and so he offers grace that's unearned and mercy that's undeserved why what have we done to to earn any of that what we have done to even have the lord do anything like that to us it's a really simple answer we have done not a thing it's a love that is unfathomable it's, it's a love that i can't comprehend with my head it's a love that we can't really understand fully it's a love that you really can only overflow of that love of God that he first had for us and as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ we obey God we obey not to be accepted by God but Jesus says as you're already accepted through my blood now obey it's a difference so this morning it, it, the question that we need to answer and everybody needs to answer for ourselves and, and we need to be honest is where is God when I'm scared the reality is there, there are many of us in, in Ira and in Scurry County and, and even maybe in this room that will say with our lips that Jesus is Lord, but they don't believe it in their hearts. There are people in Ira and in Snyder and Scurry County that say, I am a Christian, but when you ask them what that means, they'll say things like, well, I, I believe, or I'm a good person, or I walk the aisle, or I prayed the prayer, or I, I worship God kind of on my own, detached from all of the other people God saved me, either because I'm better than them or I'm not as good as them. Either way, it's a misunderstanding of the community of God. But if we look at the New Testament, we see that none of those things are how Christians That's how West Texas describes a Christian. And my fear, brothers and sisters, is, is I know there is a day of reckoning coming. When our friends, our neighbors, will face Jesus. And he's going to reveal himself as the sovereign king that is all-powerful that he is. 
recognize that we're not saved by good works. But we are saved for good works. Because I'm afraid in our community what happens is, is, is we get them skipped. We, we, we think, I have to do all of these things because of in our culture, right? I, I can't just take a gift from somebody. i got to do something back, right? You give me a gift, it's a thank you note. Boom. You make me something, I'm making you something. Boom. The gospel says is, is that's not how salvation works. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's the glory of God alone that we are saved. And so if you spend your life trying to earn back that salvation for the Lord, you've missed the gospel. spend your life living out that salvation for the Lord, you understand what Christianity is, and it's difficult to tell the difference in the two sometimes. But if you get the order wrong, there is no salvation. You cannot earn God's grace. It has to be a gift. That's why grace saves. And so we're saved not by works, by receiving in faith, by trusting in Christ this grace. Not in faith in my ability to keep the law, not in faith in my ability to, to do the things, in faith in what Jesus has done that he took my place. So, so maybe for you this morning, what you need to hear from the story is where is God when I'm, I'm scared is that God is with you, God hears you, and God sees you, and it's time. Stop pushing the Lord off. pretending you and God are good when deep down you know that the faith that you claim is not the faith you claim. And good news is Jesus isn't done with us yet. I was telling somebody the other day, you are invincible until the Lord decides it's time for you to go home. So that you're here means that the Lord is not done with you yet. Repent and turn to Jesus. It requires humility, but it also gives eternal salvation. If that's you, do you need somebody to talk to? I'm, I'm here all the time. I'm always available to you. So maybe for you, it's, it's that you're saved and the Spirit's working in you to continue to grow in grace, to continue to grow in mercy, to cast aside maybe some secondary things that have, have gotten you hindered up and to come back to the Lord, to continue to mature in Christ, to grow in love for Christ's bride, his church. And maybe for you, the Lord's working in a different way. I, I don't know, but I know this. He is with you, he hears you, and he sees you, and there's still grace, and there's still mercy to be had. How will you respond to it? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. God, I thank you that we can come to a passage like this, and we can deal with such a silly question on the surface. But God, when we look a little bit deeper than the surface, what we see is this is a huge question that you have for us today. It's a question that reveals so much about our heart. God, I pray that you would work in us this morning, that you would help us to understand where you are when we're scared. That you would help us to trust in you, to grow in you, to mature.